So you start with the author. James is the author. And then it's to whom it is written. That's how these letters are typically... They start in the New Testament. And when you don't see a main verb, it's so interesting. I know this is kind of like grammar stuff, but when you don't see a main verb at the beginning of a letter, that tells you that you're in like an introduction where it's like, here's the from and here's the to. Okay, that's what we're seeing here in James 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, and as we see here, James is the teacher of the what we call, or theologians call, the diaspora. Diaspora being the dispersion of people. That's the, the main idea, is that people are dispersed. And uh, let me go ahead and move the slide here, so that I'll come back to the white one later when we do some writing and drawing. Um, he is the teacher of these dispersed Probably, very likely, Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians. And this dispersion actually began after the martyrdom of Stephen. Okay, and I'm reading here from the ESV here in the notes. In the Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it kind of concludes with a, with a thought from the previous chapter. And Saul approved of his execution. That would be Stephen's execution. And then there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered. Scattered. That's the word dispersed. That's the word dispersed. That's the diaspora term, but it's in a verb form. Diaspero is the, the verb form. They were dispersed throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. The apostles stayed back. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul, who eventually became Paul, was ravaging the church house by house. He was going from one house to another persecuting them and dragging them out, both men and women, and committing them to prison. By the way, this just dawned on me. So this is the first time I've heard this. Um, But house by house is the term that Paul uses later on in Acts 20 to talk about how he went from house to house teaching and ministering to people. Isn't that neat to see how the Holy Spirit changed his ministry in his life? He went from, that's the exact same phrase, kata oikus, is used here as well as there to describe he went by house by house, dragging them out for persecution at the beginning, and then ministering them from house to house. I don't think that's an accident. James became the leader. This is James, the the writer of this letter here, he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And then this persecution happens and everyone gets spread out everywhere. And it's interesting because now that everyone's spread out, it's kind of how, this is really cool how this works, but it's kind of how when Israel was sent into exile and they were dispersed in the Old Testament, right? Uh, Every synagogue that was then set up outside of Israel was then put under the authority of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. It's the Sanhedrin kind of representing everybody from Jerusalem. Well, now that's happening again, except in the church. It's happening in the same way. And so what we actually have is Christian Jews now are becoming a... Repeating of history of what's going on in the Old Testament. There's an actual divine linkage that God is making there. That God is doing the same thing here. So what James does is he represents all of these scattered Jews everywhere from Jerusalem. Just like the Sanhedrin would for the synagogues uh, during the exilic period. So the church in Jerusalem was viewed basically as the home church for all Jewish Christians who were dispersed, who were scattered, who were part of this diaspora. And so James exercises that spiritual leadership for them. And he, we believe that the dates that James was the head of the church in Jerusalem span from A.D. 47 to about A.D. 62. And this is not James the uh, Apostle, one of the the original 12 disciples of Jesus. This is actually James, the half-brother of Jesus, who is mentioned several times in the New Testament, in fact. 
And we actually see how originally in John chapter 7 verse 5, not even his brothers were believing in him. And it took some time. And it is surmised very likely that when Jesus appeared to James, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, specifically to James and actually individually to James because of the terminology that Paul uses. Then he appeared to such and such. Then he appeared to so and so. Then he appeared to James. And then he appeared to the rest of the apostles. Uh, it's probably at that point that James really came to true saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, let's talk about the date of this book specifically. And you can see it up there on the screen. Probably written A.D. 45 to 49. Now, if you kind of use your chronology here, Jesus ascending to heaven in A.D. 33-ish, you know, give or take. We're talking about not too long after that, 12, relatively speaking, right? 12 to 13 years after that. Uh, And the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, which James was strategically a part of, and actually was probably the primary player in how that Jerusalem Council turned out and where it went. Uh, The Jerusalem Council took place in about probably A.D. 49, which probably means that James probably would have mentioned it in his letter if it had already happened, and so it probably hadn't happened yet. So it's probably right before the Jerusalem Council uh, took place. And James's letter addresses Christians at this point um, who are pretty much all Jews, and we already talked about this, to the 12 tribes which are part of the diaspora. Uh, now, Also, we notice that in this book, in James, there are no specific Gentile-related issues related to uh, meat sacrificed to idols and whether we should eat that or not, or circumcision and whether the Gentiles should be circumcised. So those issues with the Jerusalem Council probably hadn't been uh, talked about or hadn't been fully determined yet, according to the Jerusalem Council. And so we're probably dealing with some date of AD 48, maybe, maybe early AD 49. And so that's where we get this book. And so what's interesting, that would then make, and there's a lot of good reasons for this theologically, that would make James the first New Testament book to be written of all of them. It's interesting that. James would be actually the first book. And then Matthew would then be the next book, the first gospel to be written. Isn't it interesting that it starts with a letter to the Jews and then a gospel to the Jews? You have to set the Jewish precedent first in canon, the canon of the New Testament, before you get to the books going to the Gentiles. That has to be the case. And so that actually... Also makes a lot of sense given James's position in the church because James was the head of the church in Jerusalem and he has quite a bit of um, uh, leadership among even the apostles specifically. And we'll get more into that in a little bit. Now, let's talk a little bit about the historical and theological themes that occur in James. Now, for many of you, James may be a favorite book. And it is a wonderful book for the Christian life. And if you love James, like I do, it is uh, just a, a fantastic book that we learn about how to live a godly Christian life. And it has some hard words for us, but it also has some very insightful Words, doesn't it? And it has a lot of wisdom to offer, especially related to trials and temptation. You can see that. That is a a key theme that occurs in this book. In chapter 1 and verse 2, it kicks off right at the very beginning. Count it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials, multifaceted, multi colored trials. The reason why I use that is because it's in the Greek. Septuagint, that's the word that's used for Joseph's coat of many colors. Multifaceted, multicolored trials. All different shades of trials. Count them all joy. And it's actually interesting because in chapter 1, verse 1, we see, he says at the very end of verse 1, greetings. Greetings. Well, in, in Greek, that's just the word joyful. 
be joyful, okay? Be joyful. And that was a very common expression. It's kind of like the, um, our British English brothers and sisters who say, cheers, right? Be cheerful, right? It's kind of like that. Um, yeah, cheerio, exactly. <laughs> that's right. And that's, that's basically what it's saying. And, and it's so interesting that James uses this phrase to kind of tip off, now count it all joy. Be joyful, you know, joyful greeting. Count it all joy in various trials. James is the first New Testament writer to connect enduring suffering as the proof of salvation of a truly saved person. Of course, he's, I would argue, the first New Testament writer, period. But he is also just starts with that immediately, and we see that pick up right here in his letter. And look at verse 12. This is uh, James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures trial or temptation because after he is approved, approved is the, probably the best way to take that, after he's approved, he will receive the crown of life, which he promised to those who love him. You can see how enduring persecution, enduring trial, shows the evidence of true saving faith. And we actually saw that earlier when we talked about the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews picks up on that. Chapter 3, verse 14 is actually very um, Very important to this. We have become partakers of Christ. We have already become partakers of Christ. If we hold fast firm to the end. That phrasing is perfectly set up so that we've already become partakers of Christ, but it's only demonstrated if we endure to the end. Okay? Note this too. This is interesting, but um, Hebrews, James, First Peter, are about dealing with attacks and suffering from those outside the church. Outside the church. Whereas when we get to Second Peter and Jude a little bit later, those are dealing with attacks inside the church that people will come in and infiltrate the church. Uh, specifically. Second Peter, and I think some people wonder, like, okay, isn't Second Peter and Jude kind of a repeat of one another? So what's the point of having both of them in the canon? Very important. Second Peter says, false teachers will come among you. It hasn't happened yet. Jude says, they have come in. Jude is, now what do we do now that they're here? Second Peter is, let's prepare for it. Get ready. A key word also here in the book of James, of course, in corresponding with trials, as you can see here on the slide, is endurance. And endurance is really important, obviously, when you're dealing with trials. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 mention this endurance, and then we see that also what we read in verse 12. And then in chapter 5, later on, we see this word endurance as well. In fact, we should probably go over there, turn over to James chapter 5. Verse 11, I think it's always helpful to kind of peek over at these verses and read them, thinking about them in these contexts. Chapter 5, verse 11. Behold, and I have to stop right there, hold on. Um, It's one of these things that I, whenever I'm reading, I'm like, does anybody ever say behold in their, like, vernacular today? Like, you know, behold, look at that. It's a rainbow, you know. Behold, check it out. It's basically, if you want the actual idea of what he's saying here, he's like, check this out. That's what he's saying. Look at this. Check this out. We regard as blessed those who endured. What? Trial, tribulation, persecution. And boy, is there no greater example of that than who? Job. You heard about the endurance of Job. Oh, and this is so cool. And it says literally in Greek, the end of the Lord. Like, what does that mean? The finality, the conclusion, the result from the Lord. What was that result? That he got everything double back? No, because that's not what the book of Job is about. Job doesn't care to get everything back. He wants to know what? Why? Why? How does the book of Job end? Oh, I got everything back. Too cool. No. How does it end? He what? Died. 
Like that doesn't make sense. How is, how is the Lord compassionate? It says, right? Because he was full of compassion. Because at Job's death, what? He realizes what? I will see the one whom the Lord. I will see my maker, right? On that day. The, the book ends strategically at his death because he endured to the what? To the end. And then his questions were then what? Answer. That's how Job ends. This is what the end of the Lord means. This is what the result, the conclusion of Job means. It's that he what? Died. Otherwise, the writer should have left that detail out if we were all about the prosperity gospel. Should have been like, aha, he got double. Great, good. And he lived his best life now, right? No. Then he what? Died. (laughs) We should just erase that in our Bible, right? God is the one, kind of tying this back into James, God is the one who supernaturally keeps you saved. But, even so, whether that's with Job or whether that's with us, but that doesn't relieve us of the responsibility to be faithful, to persevere. And you see that in the book of Hebrews, especially, don't you? Because it says, hold fast. You have to hold fast. But God is the one who is what? Holding you fast as you hold fast. Another key theological point or, or maybe term or word that occurs throughout James is the word maturity. And I'm not as fond of the word maturity, even though I think it conveys some of the ideas of what this word gives. But it's really the word completeness. It's kind of to be whole, complete. You're lacking in what? Nothing, right? That's what James 1 talks about. Lacking in nothing. James characterizes maturity or wholeness or completeness as the goal of suffering. And then you can see this in James chapter 1, verse 3. Knowing that the approving or the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its complete Work. It's perfect, mature, complete work so that you may be complete and whole, lacking in nothing. That's the terminology here that James is using to describe getting to that point. Also, faith. Faith is a key word. You can see the verses listed up there quite a few times. And many have accused James of being a letter about works works but it's really a book about faith and you can see that especially in the iconic passage right you know about this right uh faith and works in james chapter 2 right and that whole debate with you know paul and james are against each other and they're opposed and they have two different theologies and that kind of thing james chapter 2 verse 14 what is the prophet my brothers if someone should say to have faith but he doesn't have works now here's the key what does it say Is that what? Is that faith able to save him? You see, what what is James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26 all about? It's about faith. What kind of faith saves? It's not ever going down the road of, are the works able to save him or the faith able to save him? No. It's saying, is that kind of faith able to save? No. Let me show you the kind of faith that does save. By the way, Martin Luther, in his 1522 preface to the New Testament, called into question the canonicity of James' scripture, calling it an epistle of straw. And I bring that up because I know that's kind of like, oh, but I love Martin Luther. And I love, yeah, exactly, I know. And and every time that I would hear that, I'm always like, ah, what a bummer. But I didn't know this until I started reading the notes. Thank you, Steve, for putting this in here. He actually retracted that comment in later editions. I had no idea that that was true. Uh, And I think that we need to emphasize that whenever we mention the fact that he did not consider James originally as maybe part of the canon. Or he really questioned it, I should say. He really questioned it. Uh, But he actually retracted that later. That's really helpful to know. Um, Not Again, like he could have been, you know, he's fallible. Martin Luther fell, we all are, but it's good to know that that wasn't his final word on James. Uh, he actually mentions, even so, many noble and useful qualities of the book of James. Uh, 
It's just that Luther had trouble originally reconciling the theology of James, obviously, with Paul because of James chapter 2 and this whole idea. He just didn't really come to a great conclusion of that early on. And then, of course, he retracts that later, which is great. But all, throughout the whole process, no matter what his view was, he always wanted to be able to reconcile them. That's a good distinction as well. Biographer Roland... I'm going to mispronounce this name. Baiton, I have no idea. B-A-I-N-T-O-N. Pointed out uh, this. Once Luther remarked that he would give his doctor's beret to anyone who would reconcile James and Paul. Now, talking about that, I think that's talking about his hat. You know that hat that you see in the picture? The the cardboard cutout that we have. Have you guys seen that? The Martin Luther we have with the glass? Anyways, okay. Um, Some of you you guys know what I'm talking about. It's at the first watch. All right. But I think like he literally would have given that away if someone could have explained to him and reconciled the books together. So um, I think there have been some a lot of scholars recently that have done some excellent work on that, and he probably would have given them all his bray a thousand times over. Uh, okay, now, a really key theme to this book, this is the one you need to, need to pay attention to, is wisdom. Wisdom. This is probably the number one thematic element of James. You have to understand that James is really a proverbial book. It is really a New Testament letter, like, but that kind of mirrors like Proverbs. James is often called the Proverbs in the New Testament. And it's the first book in the New Testament to be written, and it's basically all about application. And so you can see that proverbial element coming out in it. We're going to go back to this later, but just to kind of peek at some of those verses there, chapter 1, verse 5, he he starts with wisdom. Let him ask from God for wisdom. Chapter 3, verse 13, we'll cover this a little bit later here as well. Who therefore is wise and understanding among you? There's that wisdom there. Let him show by his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. And then in verse 15 and 17, you also see the word wisdom occur as well. Now, it doesn't occur a ton of times when you kind of do a head count of all of the word wisdom in the book, but it occurs at key points, and it actually is the flavor of the entire book. Everything is just dipped in wisdom, and that's kind of the whole tenor of what, why, and that's why it's really the main theme here. Also, we see some themes of deliverance and salvation. James is evangelistic, as he's even writing um, to Christians here. And we see a theme of even sin. And you can see the references there and write those down. James makes no apology for confronting sin and encouraging the eradication of sin in the Christian's life. And that's good for us. We need that, even though sometimes it hurts. But James is very blunt. He gets right to the point. He speaks into our lives where it hurts. I mean, he even goes as far as to say in chapter 4, verse 4, you adulteresses, adulteresses, I don't know, how do you pronounce that, right, in the plural, right? He goes after them with terminology that's a little confrontive. And then, of course, you see God occur quite often as the one who is working behind the scenes in the Christian life on a regular basis. Chapter 1, verse 5, verse 13, verse 17, and chapter 2, chapter 4, etc. James is a very theocentric book, continually pointing to his practical applications back to God. Okay? Now, thinking about a literary structure... And uh, I like these because they uh, are alliterated, so it helps you to remember, okay? And this is actually double alliteration, so you should really remember it. Number one, patient in testing. Okay, this is just kind of thinking an outline through the book, and you're like, well, what are, what are the references here? Um, I'm pretty sure when I looked at this, this pretty much is like James 1, James 2, James 3, James 4, and James 5, basically. Okay, this is kind of an outline, kind of giving you a point per chapter. Patient in testing. Practicing the truth. Powerful over one's tongue. A peacemaker, but not a troublemaker. And prayerful in troubles. That's a, that's a good encapsulation of, of, I think, the concepts that occur in those chapters. Let me give you another one. And this is where I need to use my writing utensil here. 
we have... Have we explained chiasms in here before? I think Steve talks about them like all the time, so I'm going to assume that you kind of know what that is. All right. The whole book of James is a chiasm. The whole book. Like, is that really? Is that true? Like, can, can writers do that? If you ever look at the book of Lamentations, it is like the biggest chiasm ever. Like, it really is. Like, in every way. It is a chiasm through and through. And it centers on the middle. The middle is always the most important part of a chiasm, right? The middle part. So what's the middle point of Lamentations? Great is your faithfulness. Wow, that's powerful. I mean, like, down to almost like the verses. Great is your faithfulness. Lamentations 3, right? Out of 5. Right in the middle. Here, what we're dealing with, trials... Chapter 1, verses 2 through 27. Rich and poor. Chapters 2, 1 through 13. Yeah? Remember that? Like you see a guy coming into your assembly and he's, he's rich, right? Then there's the poor man. You kind of shove him aside. True faith. Chapter 2, verse 14 through 26. Speech and the tongue. The tongue is a it's like a fiery world. Okay, let me skip over the middle part because that's the most important part. Then you have speech again, chapter four, verses eleven through twelve, and true faith. Right, like when you're going about and. Um, going to make a business venture. You say, hey, we're going to go to such and such a city, right? But you're not really believing that the Lord is the one that supplies. Chapter 4, verse 13 through 17. This one's all about slander, by the way, in case you're wondering what that part is. Slandering your brothers. And then rich and poor. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And then trials again. We just saw that with Job, right? Trials, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Oh, sorry, 7 through 20. See how these connect? There we go. Chiasm, right? What's the middle then? That's the most important part. The middle is wisdom. Yeah? 3, verse 13 through 17. This is what they call, they I'm going to use, um, I'm actually really saying primarily one guy in particular, Dr. William Varner at the Master's University, um, has done a lot of work in the book of James, and he's really proven this out, that this is a chiasm. This is the thematic peak of the book. It's the thematic climax. And then you have what's called the hortatory peak, which really has to do with submission. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. And you know those, those commands. Where he says, Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. All the commands, command, 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 command. This is the response of true wisdom. This is the... These are the, the concepts. The wisdom is the thematic. This is the preaching. That's what hortatory. This is the, like, what you're supposed to do. This is what I'm telling you to do as a result of that. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to him. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Actually, that terminology is, I think, intentionally connected back to Isaiah 1. When he talks about, um, let us reason together, and then he starts listing off these commands to be clean and to, to have clean garments and um, wash yourselves and you shall be clean. It's that staccato kind of command after command after command after you understand what you're supposed to do in the wisdom. 
That's the chiasm of James. And when you understand that, now you understand this is not just a bunch of disjointed advice going from verse to verse. Like, oh, that's kind of a cool concept. But no, you can start tying it together and you start gaining even more insight out of it. Which, um, this is kind of totally a side note, but Proverbs, you know, like chapter 10 through 29. I've been trying to do a lot of work in this area and just have a long ways to go in this, but... They're not just a bunch of random proverbs just there. They're tied together. They're organized. But the question is, is trying to figure out how. Because they seem very random, don't they? They seem like just a bunch of jelly beans in a jar just kind of randomly struck up. And like, oh, that's kind of random. I'll take that one for today. You know, like, oh, cool. And that's fine. You actually gain a lot when you take a proverb a day, right? But you also can miss how they're tied together. They are intentionally tied together. And, the, and trying to figure that out is where you gain even more insight, more understanding. All right, so that is a chiastic way of looking at James. Now, we still need to, need to come back here. Uh, let me talk, let's talk about the purpose, although, oh yeah, there's the purpose, okay. Um, let's talk about the purpose of James, and uh, always getting to the purpose of the book is so important, because then you know whether you're applying it correctly or not. You can kind of work within that boundary to understand whether that's what you were, in, it was intended for you to pull away from the, the book. Purpose, interesting that it's one of the, one of the first major corrections ever given, um, ever given the new, new, uh, the new Christian church was to stop accusing God of doing wrong. Um, so, I think this was put in the notes because this is kind of like a corollary leading into the purpose here. James chapter 1, verse 13, right? In, at the beginning of James, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. He tempts no one. It is interesting that one of the first major corrections is to stop accusing God of doing wrong. So purpose, the purpose of James, believers who were accusing God of temptation, right? Leading them into trial. You're tempting me to sin, God. Stop putting me into trial so I don't sin. Believers who were accusing God of temptation were told to receive the word with an attitude of being quick to hear and slow to speak. By the way, that's not just, when it says quick to hear, slow to speak, that's not just terminology to say like, Oh, we should, like, in our interpersonal relationships, we should be quick to hear people and slow to talk. That's not, I mean, yes, you can pull that out to a degree. That's not what it's primarily described. It's not talking about our interpersonal relationships. It's talking about our position before the Word of God. When you look at the context, when you talk about, it's talking about the Word of God before the New Testament Christians, and they are to have an attitude of quick to hear it and slow to speak against it. Or, but, but God, hold on! And it mirrors exactly what Solomon talks about in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Uh, be quick to hear and slow to speak when you approach God, when you go to the temple. There's more on that. I would want to go there, but we don't have time to go there. Okay, But, purpose. Believers who were accusing God of temptation were told to receive the word with an attitude of being quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger at God's divine providence in their life to bring trial, temptation, suffering, so as to develop them endurance in them necessary to endure those trials and deliver their souls and receive the crown of life as a result. This is really, I would argue, this is Christianity 101. This is what it means to live the Christian life. I know 1 John is kind of put up as that. I would actually argue 1 John is more about trying to figure out who is the right kind of apostle to follow and who's not. There's a whole thing on that. Uh, It is kind of about like, yes, am I walking in the faith? There is part of that there. But a lot of it, actually, when you look at the we's and the u's, it's it's kind of more about um, who are the, the apostles that are truly from Christ and those who are not. James is really the book about what does it mean Christianity 101. Do I, how do I know if I'm really a genuine Christian? Here's how you walk the Christian life. This is Christianity 101. It looks more and more like um, an ancient text that came a little bit after the New Testament called the Didache. It looks more and more like that than any other book in the New Testament because the Didache was all about Christianity 101. This is what it means to live the Christian life. 
And so it's very appropriate that Christianity 101 should be the very first book that was written in the New Testament, huh? All right, interpretive issues. Woo, we got to keep running. We still have a whole other book to get through. Oh, man. <laughs> Buckle your seatbelts. Okay, here we go. Uh, James chapter 2. Well, we kind of already talked about this contradiction between the theology of Paul and James. I mean, I think just by itself, is that faith able to save him? That kind of just knocks it out. Like, this isn't about faith. Like, oh, this is justification by works. This is justification by faith. Uh, no, this is about... James is talking about what is true saving faith. Uh, but let me just kind of list out what the possible ideas are here. Um, oh, sorry, it doesn't actually list those. This is for the next one that we're going to talk about. But just in, in brief, the main idea that people come away with with James chapter 2 typically is that James is talking about, oh, it's justification by works, not by faith. So therefore, when Paul emphasizes justification by faith, they're at odds with each other, and they're not really believing the same gospel, and it's two different things. And that's why Martin Luther has such a problem with that. But it clearly... Like chapter 2, verse 14 says, can that faith save him? We understand that James really is talking about what is true saving faith. He's really going after that. And we really understand this in the terms of, uh, we can really encapsulate it in these terms. James is addressing the result of true saving faith. That's his terminology that he uses. It's about result. Paul is emphasizing the cause of true saving faith. The cause. James is illustrating what true faith must look like, and Paul is delineating what establishes true saving faith. And both use Abraham as an example of this. And it's really cool because, you know, Paul is helping us understand justification by faith in the life of Abraham when it says Abraham believed in God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's the cause of true saving faith. But then James is really emphasizing what? The fruition of it. The end of Abraham's life, which is he went up on a mountain and nearly sacrificed his son Isaac on an altar, right? That's the result of true saving faith, yes? That's the term. Look over at James chapter 2 really quick. James chapter 2, verse 22. Speaking of Abraham here. You see that faith was working together with his works. And faith was... Your translation may have very different... There might be very different translations here on this word. Faith was brought to fullness. That's probably the best way to bring out that terminology. Brought to full results. What does that mean? Faith was brought to full result. It finally came into full actualization. Not that it wasn't already there. Not that the works were now saving him somehow. But the faith brought to full life. Was it, faith was shown to be fully true. Because his works demonstrated it. You understand? If the works aren't there, then how does someone on the outside fully recognize that he has genuine faith? That's why works are so helpful and important to us who don't know the hearts of people. Because it shows the genuineness of your faith. How else is it going to do that? Now, when you think of James, isn't that his whole point? It's like, well, be warm to be filled. You know, like, yes, but... Genuine faith moves. It actually acts. If you really believe that that person is in need, then you're going to go and help them. That is true genuine faith. How can faith be real if you're not going to act on it? Okay, so there's that issue. And then there's another one that not to be outdone by James chapter 5. Elders' prayer and healing. You might be familiar with this one. Elders' prayer and healing. Chapter 5, verse 13. Someone suffering among you, let him pray. Someone cheerful, let him sing. Let him sing songs. Someone weak and sick among you, let him call on the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick or weak, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, it will be forgiven him. A couple different views here that you can see. Some argue, hey, this is 
supernatural power that's given specifically to elders. The problem is, is that there's not a lot of... In fact, this is the only evidence in the New Testament where that would actually occur. So it's a little hard to prove that one in any other way. Uh, Or we have the promise of physical healing. Like in every situation, we just have this promise. Like if you pray, and this is totally getting into the prosperity gospel, isn't it? If you pray enough, if you believe enough, you will be saved, you'll be healed. Um, But... We know historically that actually doesn't work. (laughs) And that there are a lot of situations where that's not true. Uh, We also have um, the promise of guaranteed restoration of spiritually weak believers and restoring them to spiritual wholeness. So this is kind of taken in a more spiritual light, that they're spiritually healed. Or, and this is, I think this is definitely the right view... The promise of guaranteed physical healing to a repentant believer who has been under the Lord's discipline for sin. And that makes a lot of sense. When you look at the context, there's, there's actually sin being brought up, talked about. And I don't have time to get into the grammar as to why this section makes sense, but it actually really does. Um, and you can always ask me if you have any questions about it. Um, this is actually tied really closely with 1 John 5, verse 16, when he talks about a sin leading to death. And Hebrews chapter 6, even. Okay? Where you have... It's um, restoring such a, a believer, but it maybe they reach the point of no return and it leads to death. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Restoring such a, a brother in Christ. Or 1 Corinthians even 11, verse 30, where he addresses that some have even grown sick and died because of sin in the midst. So I would argue that's what is being described here. Um, And we can see that even just with the illustration of Elijah and um, confession of sin and the involvement of the elders and so forth, all of these things point to that understanding of this text. Okay, so that's, that is in a nutshell is the book of James. I know I'm kind of going quickly here now. We have a few more minutes. I'm definitely going to get you out here before 1025 because I know it's choir day. So we need to make sure we get you guys to um, choir call. But let's talk briefly about the book of First Peter, and we'll kind of fly through this. Who wrote First Peter? Should be pretty obvious. Peter. All right. He's the first word of this book. Mentions himself as the author. The date is probably A.D. 60 or something like that. Uh, it might be a little bit later, and there's a reason why I would argue that, but it's, it's not as... Um, not as vital to kind of get that date exactly right, but it's somewhere around that time in the AD 60s. Emperor Nero is heating up persecution in Rome, which will have implications for the whole Roman Empire. Uh, so Nero is really the one that is instigating a lot of this persecution. And we really see an emphasis on suffering and persecution. And it's almost like it's imminent. It's right here. And of course, this is a different kind of persecution than what was going on with the audience in James. After the fire of Rome in AD 64, Nero blamed Christians and really executed a full-scale government-sponsored persecution for the next 250 years, actually, that kind of just kind of kept going and going and going on and off, on and off. Now, the audience is debated. This is a really tough one. This goes back and forth. And there are good scholars on both sides. So whatever view you end up landing on, you're not going to be in any bad company whatsoever. Uh, I think Steve uh, takes the the Jewish believers because of some of the terminology that's related to Judaism, which is great. I think that's good. Uh, I've actually taken that view in the past. I'm kind of leaning a little bit of a different direction. There's a couple reasons for that. He does use the word dispersion. That's kind of the same idea that we saw in James chapter 1, the dispersion of the Jews. Uh, the problem is, is that dispersion is actually used of Gentiles and Greeks in John chapter 7, verse 35. So dispersion is not exclusive to Jews. Also, there's an article, the, in James 1, 1, but there's no article, the, in First Peter when it talks about the dispersion. And this is a dispersion of those in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So it's a very specific locality of dispersion specifically related to people who are uh, being dispersed because of persecution. And so we, uh, we're trying to figure out exactly what kind of dispersion is that. 
and I would argue probably Gentile-related. Um, it's interesting because Peter actually ministered to Jews for most of his ministry. But now he begins to minister later in his ministry to Gentiles, especially because of the rejection of the gospel among the Jews. That begins to take place quite a, quite a bit. And so now the ministry starts to go to the Gentiles. And it's not just Paul and Barnabas and others, but the apostles, the original 12 or the original 11, are going to the Gentiles as well as time goes on, or whoever's left from those 11. Um, and I would argue that Peter may have written this right after Paul is beheaded, right after Paul is killed, uh, because Peter is stepping into an area that Paul really founded uh, there in Asia Minor, right, in modern-day Turkey. And he steps in to hold fast the ministry there and the churches there after Paul is now off the scenes. Okay, So Peter's stepping in for that purpose. And we see a lot of terminology of Jews, like Judaistic terminology to, these, to this audience. So I can understand why we might want to think that this might be a Jewish audience. Um, but like when we see like in chapter 2, verses 9 and 11, that they are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, those are, those are terms that go back to the Old Testament for the Jews. This is kind of logic that actually is what Paul uses in Romans chapter 9 when he applies Old Testament texts that really originally were meant for the Jews have now set a precedent for the Gentiles to fall under a similar paradigm. And that's what's going on here. They fall under the similar paradigm of being a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Not to say that that's what those passages are saying um, originally in their context, but that this is now setting a precedent for the Gentiles as well. And so we could go into more of that, but for now we're going to keep moving forward. Historical and theological themes, we see God occur a lot. The word hope is such an important theme in this book. I can't overemphasize that. In fact, really the theme verse of 1 Peter 1, or 1 Peter as a whole, is in 1 Peter 1 verse 13, where he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, or girding up the loins of your mind, literally, being sober, Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's basically his thesis statement for the entire book. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you, even in the middle of suffering, which is another theme that you see there. And glory, okay? Glory is a, a huge theme that we see. I, I know some of this isn't on here, but there's, there's a huge use of this word, suffering and glory. If you're going to be glorified with Christ, you, ha- with Christ, you have to first suffer with Him. You have to suffer with Christ in order to be glorified with Christ. And we see that even in, uh, in Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Uh, be, suffer, suffering with Him so that we might be glorified with Him. Uh, precious... Precious uh, is, a, is a word that's used often, and gold is used. Again, that's not one's not on the slide there. Uh, stones. Stones are used. Like, Christ is the cornerstone. We are then stones set upon the cornerstone, which is giving this corporate unity that we have with Christ. The uh, terminology of strangers and exiles, even hospitality is being friendly towards strangers. That is a term that occurs a lot because when you're suffering, you realize that your home is not here. You are in exile. And so the Christian church is now living out the exile of Israel, which is really interesting. And this is a really cool theme that, or a, a feature that Peter uses in his book, alliteration. Alliteration. It basically means like, right, you have alliterated terms like we use when we you know, do sermons and we have alliterated points, right? The first letter of each word has the same letter. Peter uses it, I've counted, at least four times in his letter. And at very key points, one of them in... Chapter 2, verse 21, is like the key to the whole passage, uh, where he says, he became an example for you to follow in his steps. That's all alliterated. Do, do, do. It has like this hoo, 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 hoo. It's centering your ears and your eyes on those verses to say, this is for your example. He committed no sin. There was no, um, no deceit in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't utter any threats, but he kept entrusting it to God. That is for your example to follow. That's the emphasis of alliteration. It's drawing your attention to that point. Also, themes of lifestyle, you can see there. Conduct is a key word that occurs. Uh, Doing good or keeping good is a key word that occurs. Stop doing evil. Submission occurs at some key points as well. 
Obey and disobey. Holiness. And then... Election, excuse me, election occurs quite often as well. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, to those who are the elect exiles, chapter 2, verse 4, coming to him as cho- uh, chosen and precious. He was rejected uh, by men, but in the sight of God, he's cho- chosen and precious. Uh, chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, just as he was chosen, so you are chosen, and so therefore you are in him. And then chapter 5, verse 13, she who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen. And then, um, oh, I had some key, I had some things I don't have time to get into. Ask me afterwards if you want. Um, literary structure, more alliteration on our part here. Salvation of the believer, chapter 1, 1 verse 2, uh, to chapter 2, verse 12. Salvation of the believer, and then submission of the believer, chapter 2, verse 13, to chapter 3, verse 12. And then suffering of the believer, chapter 3, to chapter 5, there as well. And that's a pretty good literary structure that kind of gives us a breakdown of the different segments of this book. Now, let me give you a purpose. Um, Persecuted Christians were called to live a holy life as they remembered their future hope. I kind of expanded that a little bit more to say this. In the, and, and again, I'm kind of inferring that this is when Paul has died. In the wake of Paul's death and the persecution of Christians under Nero, believers in Asia Minor are exhorted by Peter to hope in the return of Christ and the glory to come as more precious than anything in this life and to model this to their persecutors. Uh, in doing what is good. Okay? That's really the primary purpose of this book. And then, of course, the thesis is in chapter 1 and verse 13. Um, there are a couple of interpretive issues, but we're out of time. So if you have any questions on those, and you're like, hey, I have a question on an interpretive issue that I've thought of in the book. Like, even like, who is Babylon? Like, wh- why does he even mention Babylon? There's a whole theological reason why Babylon's mentioned there. Um, just ask me afterwards. Otherwise, I want to get you guys off. I uh, know that the choir call is coming. So let us pray, and then we'll, we'll head out. Father, thank you so much for this time together. And uh, Lord, we just, it's so rich. We just never have enough time to exhaust your word, and we are thankful for that. And you have men- made us people... Um, it's like what Proverbs says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is the glory of kings or of men to seek it out. Lord, that's your word in, in a nutshell. You have hidden things, not so that they would be not findable, but so that it requires search and diligence to find them. And it is a joy and it is a blessing to delve deep into your word. May it give us grace for our lives. May it gives us, give us hope. May it give us faith in you and belief, and may we live in light of that, we pray. Bless this morning as we worship you together as a body of Christ. Please come quickly, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everyone. Looking forward to worship with you this morning.